Hello again, all my gorgeous listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Glow West podcast. We're here to chat all about the delights of sex, sexuality, and the body. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of podcasts on politics, culture, society, trans rights, and of course, me with the sex podcast. If you like what we do, Please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It really does help keep the mics on and help spread the word about the podcast as well. Or if you like, please pop over to Apple and rate and review. If you want to get in touch, the Instagram and Twitter is at Glow West Podcast. So today we're talking about a kind of heavy subject, but there is light at the end of the tunnel as well, but a necessary subject to talk about, and that is healing from sexual violence. And sexual violence has happened to quite a lot of us, and it's important to note that there is many pathways to healing and different things work for different people. So to talk us through this, I have the perfect guest for you today. Today I'm talking to Angie Gunn, who is a licensed social worker and certified sex therapist and she is dedicated to the integration of lived experiences and dismantling systems of oppression to center the experiences of marginalized sex and gender communities in all of her work. She co-owns a private practice and digital consulting company focusing on providing avenues for healing trauma, expanding authenticity and vulnerability and finding infinite pathways to pleasure and connection. She treats primarily queer people, so LGBT plus QIPA, kinky, non-monogamous, sex worker and sexual trauma survivor clients through the lenses of anti-oppression, liberation psychology and trauma-informed care. As a queer, kinky, non-monogamous abuse survivor and sex worker, she has experienced a daily fight to balance personal and professional fulfillment and sexual expression. Through meditation, workshop facilitation and one-on-one support, her goal is personal integration with all the parts of herself in order to provide transformation for all the parts of each of you, your relationships and your communities. Angie, thanks Emil for coming today. How are you keeping? Thanks for having me. Sorry that bio is kind of a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot going on. You are... um, many a ta- person of many many talents so um yeah which I'm delighted that we can talk about today on on the show so fantastic um we met I think is it like five years ago now I forget with the COVID times like 2015 I think yeah Was so like that six years? that's been a while <laughs> yeah god god so a while and so I followed your career since and I just think it's been fascinating again you know you're American so life always looks a little bit different and you're a little bit ahead of us and and quite a few things but I can't say I've ever met an Irish therapist who would identify as kinky non-monogamous sex worker and a sexual trauma and survivor and kinky and queer and everything else all on top of that so what's that like and how did all that lead you into the world of therapy yeah Thanks for asking that question. And yeah, it was so neat to be, be able to meet you in uh, this conference that we got to meet at and really connect deeply. So it's cool that we've been able to stay connected and have our paths cross. Um, so I, I grew up in a really traumatizing family. Um, so my, from birth, I was kind of the like social worker and healer in my family. And um, and then I joined a cult with my family, which is another great idea. <laughs> so in, in that space, um, you know, both in the cult as well as in my family, as well as in my first um, marriage, which was in the cult, um, my sexuality, my identity, my expression was in a tiny box. And I was just living 
almost survival. I was just adapting to learn to become a healer and a holder of space as a way to survive. Um, and so post leaving those um, abusive systems, um, my entire journey since then, the last, oh, it's been 12 years, um, has been liberation, has been what does it look like to identify systems of oppression and identify harm in relationships, identify um, harm in religion, harm in families, um, and find a pathway to um, self and healing that's primarily oriented towards sexuality in my world. Um, sex was the one of the things that was the most contained <laughs> and the most limited. Um, I was a good little virgin bride, my first kiss on my wedding day, uh, and had no access to what does my body do and how do I find pleasure and had um, you know so much shame and so much fear um, in addition to sexual trauma um, happening at the same time. Um, so I mean, I, uh, I was with a lover this week and broke down crying when I came again. And I was like, God damn it, will there be a time where I'm not gonna cry when I come? But it's still, there's still so much like rawness around this idea that like my pleasure is important and that I get access to expression in infinite ways. And all of the work I do as well as the personal journey I'm on is towards that most empowering, most liberating way of being in it and always healing the things that come up as I go along. So it's always a personal journey and a professional one. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And I think that that's fascinating, you know, your point there of, there's so much for sexual violence um, survivors to have to process sometimes. So it's it's family violence and then relationship violence, religious violence in a lot of cases. And then that societal, like your own little community kind of sense of violence of all keeping you down. And it's it's really hard for a lot of people to even start addressing all of that because it's hard enough to address one of those things. Yeah you know you've you've made it through all all of those things like that's difficult for a lot of people I could imagine yeah certainly and I think it, you know what we talk about in trauma the trauma work that I do that's the primary lens of therapy that I that I focus on is trauma integration and expression um you know we talk a lot about the fact that trauma is always compounding and so there's no there's no single single incident trauma like no matter how much people want to focus on like you were raped that day or that thing happened to you like it is never that thing it is the way that um, the situations that led up to it, it's how you saw yourself, it's how other people treated you after, it's how it felt to be in your body after. So whether it is one incident or many, many layers of trauma that you're experiencing, it is all intertwined with identity and sense of self and well-being and future relationships. Um, and so it should all be, it should be managed in a holistic way where you're talking about all these parts of you and finding the way that um, your healing is within you and within your own strength and power and capacity, but you might need some support in unlocking those skills. Absolutely. And and then a lot of people on top of that have to deal with intergenerational trauma. They're coming from family members who are passing down trauma because it's just not dealt with. And there's no blame in that statement because it's just really hard for a lot of people. And tra uh, therapy is like relatively new concept to quite a lot of people or people don't have access to it and things like that. So do you think that that is a whole extra level that we have to deal with as survivors? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I say all the time that like, I am, I, I was born with um, sexual trauma, like I came out of the womb with many, many generations of, um, you know, folks with vulvas in my family having trauma around um, relationships to men and the patriarchy and um, subjugation and lack of power and lack of expression and, you know, do your job and, and fawn and <laughs> subvert yourself to like, be a good wife, be a good um, Christian, be a good whatever the thing was. Um, and I think that's even more so true folks who came from the African diaspora and other um, places where colonization and slavery and genocide impacted their well-being. Like we can't, we can never like 
take away the impact of many, many generations of harm um, within systems and then say it's not going to have an impact on you now, even if your life is pretty peaceful and happy. Um, there is those memories in our nervous system, there's memories in our cells that tell us that we need to constantly be vigilant. We need to figure out like, <laughs> I've consistently always had both a fear and a deference to men. <laughs> and somehow those things um, you know, are so deeply wired that it's hard to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even like, it was a very common thing in Irish society, you grow up and it was like, oh, be, you have to be good or the bad man will get you. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's like triggering off that intergenerational trauma and also placing men as that position of authority, but also as fear figures as well. So it's like, it's a very, I suppose, complex kind of thing in that aspect. Yeah, like this, this is random people of, of just like, oh, just this generic bad man will turn up and get you. And it's like, hmm, okay, that's not, not the healthiest uh, parenting technique, I suppose, that we, a lot of us experience. But I, I want to talk about, you know, that healing part, like so many of us have suffered sexual violence in so many forms, like we've said, whether it's in the family or in relationships and stuff. But then the point comes when... Or if, you know, if, if someone gets to a point when they, they kind of go, okay, I really want to start this healing process. I'm ready to kind of acknowledge some of this. And maybe it's like a response to the most recent sexual trauma and they haven't even thought about the earlier stuff yet or intergenerational stuff and all that. What happens at that point when someone goes, I'm ready? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, sort of two things. One is that um, I would want them to make sure that their readiness is also rooted in safety in their life. So if somebody has a lot of chaos, if they're currently experiencing daily trauma, like living in an unsafe relationship or living in a family home, that's a lot of trauma. Um, that's going to be really difficult to start doing healing work because your system is just activated every day in order to stay safe. And so I, I, I work with folks first on just getting to a place of grounded safety so they have more space emotionally and um, just for themselves to be in reflection and to be in healing. Um, trauma work is another full-time job, unfortunately. Like when you're doing that work actively, it takes up a lot of energy and a lot of time. And it's hard to do other work, um, capitalist work, uh, because you're going through a lot emotionally. And so your body just needs more space and time, which I know not everybody has the privilege of. Um, and sometimes we just have to do it while we're <laughs> moving through the rest of our lives. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's the first starting point is get to as safe as you can possibly be so that you have space to do the deeper work. Um, and then second, you know, find a really skilled provider who has um, extensive training in trauma. You don't want to just go to a general therapist because most therapists don't actually know how to do trauma work well. And one of the most common problems I see in clinical spaces is therapists that try to do it and don't have the training. And what they do is just re-traumatize a person. Um, and a good indicator that that's happening is if someone asks you to tell your trauma story, <laughs> the first session or second session and you haven't built trust and they haven't established what work you're actually doing together, like say no and walk away. I'm um, really glad that you have said that because I think that's really, really important to hear and, and to restate because I think a lot of therapists do that and they say, why are you here? And then if, if you're in such chaos and stuff and you, don't, you, you know, maybe you haven't got your, your boundaries all set up and you will kind of vomit all this stuff out but then like you said there's no trust and you don't know if that person is actually a safe enough person and that it's not necessarily a training part is it it's it's there's so much more to it than that totally and what I've often heard from clients is that they'll go to that therapist and they'll share their whole story and then the therapist will be like oh I'm sorry you're not I'm not the right fit for you and now you've just dumped your whole like life story oh, to the straight 
refer you out or the therapist starts crying and they need you to hold them. And there's just been some really problematic like patterns. And so, yeah, really skilled trauma therapist is not gonna make you tell your whole story and is not gonna dive in deeply session one. Um, there's gonna be a lot of preparation work first to like building safety and building connection. And ultimately to do good trauma work, you never need to tell your story. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a thing that most folks don't actually know. And so I'm trying to tell a lot of people that like the most effective trauma work is somatic, it's in your body. And it is slowly pacing activation that's coming up and then using that as an anchor to how you want to intervene. So for example, like you're having some distress in your day and you notice like, oh, my stomach's really upset today. And so we sit with that and we talk about like, what's your stomach telling you and what is it needing right now? And often it's like, I'm not safe or I'm worried about my well-being. And then it leads to like a piece of a trauma story. So we might talk about this one element, um, but you never need to like tell the whole synchronous um, tail in order to get the help that you need, right? So we're, we're using the parts that are activating as the, as the kind of portals to do the work um, versus just kind of like, uh, I like to call it like uh, trauma voyeurism where someone's just like voyeuring and getting off on like the gory details of it without really being around your healing as the goal. Okay, so that's fascinating because I think a lot of people have the idea of therapy is you go in and you talk about the horrible thing that has happened and then you sit there and process that and you're asked how you feel about it and I think that seems to be that's a standard view of, of therapy but you're saying actually no you don't have to do that and talk me through this somatic kind of stuff because I think that's again you know this podcast goes out globally but in Ireland I think that's rare enough you know there's very few somatic um cancers and therapists at the moment sure yeah, I think it, it is definitely a shift in the last, you know, 10, 15 years in, in therapy, but we've learned over and over again, and all of the research is supporting that somatic approaches are the most effective when it comes to trauma, particularly because our brains have already done all of the thinking, like our brains don't, don't need to keep thinking about it more. Um, what needs to shift is our body's mem mem memory of it, because your body has now adapted to help you stay safe. So your nervous system is... Um, has figured out a new method to stay safe since the trauma, which often isn't helpful for you. <laughs> so like, not being not being able to drive, for example, because you have an accident. Um, not being able to like, you know, have sex with a man because you had an, an abusive dynamic with one. Um, you know, your body has adapted to protect you, <clears throat> or maybe it's a lot of um, we call it fawning or like uh, sort of like passive complicitness in things that aren't aren't good for you. So that adaptation isn't serving you anymore, and so your body is the thing that's going to give you the most cues for a what needs to be worked on, and b where are you still in a survival response right? Because your brain has already identified all of this was bad. <laughs> so your brain doesn't actually give you very good cues as to what needs to change besides like, I wish that fucking thing didn't happen to me. Cool. You can't actually move through it that way. Um, whereas, you know, uh, identifying the body activation, you know, a great example, I had a client I worked with um, who was, we had, who had a childhood sexual abuse with a relative. And we spent a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out like how to help them heal and move through this without having to, again, go through all of the details. And um, eventually, as we were processing it, um, you know, the, we kept talking about like this body response and it kept coming up around their friends, like their friends in school. And they're like, oh, like then whenever they would talk about something around friendship, there'd be this activation. And then it turned out the actual trauma they suffered was their friends rejected them after their abuse because they didn't know how to engage with them. And that was the trauma experience in their body that they held on to was this like rejection, abandonment, loss. And that was the thing we wanted to heal. Okay. And so the fixation on the details around like what happened to you when you were a kid <laughs> was negligible to this person's actual feeling that they needed. Wow. And so when you're listening to the body, when you're listening to cues, when you're noticing what's happening, um, we can do a much better job of let's like, let's be more specific. We're not just going to treat your whole system for this thing that isn't actually meaningful when 
we're going to be more pinpointed and say, you know, you have loss around identity, loss around belonging, loss around, um, you know, safety in your body, and let's help you restore that. Um, and it's, the details don't actually matter. Your body can give you so many cues without needing to go through all of the story. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that's really good food for thought in a lot of ways, because I think people think, oh, you know, I have this one traumatic experience or however many of them and stuff. And it's like that's you have to deal with that. But then you also have to deal like if you come out as a, say, victim survivor of, of abuse and you tell your story, you are going to have people who don't believe you or take the abuser's side and all that. And that's an element that a lot of people don't expect because you're like everyone should be a good person and they should believe me and you know you would hope that everyone would do the right thing but unfortunately not everybody does that for a variety of of reasons and I think that's really hard to find or to to process really that you're going oh okay I thought this person was my friend and, and I thought they'd take my side or I thought my family would support me in the context and it's yeah. that kind of compounding of, of the trauma that needs to be processed also. Yeah. And I actually call that the trauma web. And I talk about kind of three primary factors outside of the actual trauma itself. Um, there's also the context in which it occurred, um, which is like oppression, characteristics of the trauma, severity, duration, relationship to the person. And then there's the things that are happening within you. How did it impact how you see yourself, your sense of safety, your own identities, your own history of trauma? intergenerational history, um, other co-occurring co co factors like mental health or substance abuse. Um, and then, you know, third factor being the response after. How did others react? How did they treat you? Was there a court system involved? Did you have community? How did it change your life and your work? So, I mean, the trauma is actually like all of these pieces um, and, and the way that it intersects way more than the actual event itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's really great to name that because I, I, I just... That, that education isn't there of like how trauma actually happens and how society responds to trauma it's just missing from from a lot of cases and then you know when you're in the midst of trauma that's not the time for educating and learning all about it you want to you know kind of prepare yourself in some ways but um I know you, you mentioned safety there and I know like for for survivors of sexual violence it can be really hard to engage in sex afterwards consensual happy fun pleasurable sex you know because there's that sense of fear of oh can I actually trust this person and that sense of like can I actually be really vulnerable because you know you want to protect yourself and that's absolutely normal not to be able to automatically engage in, in vulnerability and things like that so how how does that process look for for trying to move past you know when you're talking about somatic experiences and the body it feels like we kind of close up you know we're not we're not open and vulnerable because that's really scary and and terrifying so how do we process that part yeah certainly um and i'm gonna i'll share some images that i've made and some resources for you to share with your um, listeners so I, I can send those to you afterwards as well um, I think, you know, sort of two things. One is that in order to get to get feel safer with other people, we have to first have kind of a baseline of safety within ourselves. So I think I think that you can do both things at the same time, building safety with someone else and building safety within you. But there has to be a little bit more within you um, because we have to know what safety feels like and know when someone's crossed it. Um, and I think a lot of survivors have a difficult time um, even just feeling okay in their own bodies. Um, a lot of the like, I'm not okay, I'm dirty, I'm bad, something was wrong with me, I caused this, it was my fault, all of the kind of like negative 
um, self-talk and negative associations around like, how culture treats survivors. Like that's not from us. That's all stigma and shame from our culture that has that, that blames and shames um, those who've experienced that. And so I think that's a lot of work to do first before you're trying to connect with someone else. Um, and then, you know, once you're better at like, what are my boundaries? What do I like? How does my body respond? You know, doing a lot more masturbation and self-exploration and kind of like um, understanding what your body's cues are, the more body awareness you have, like, oh, my stomach is upset. This means this thing. Oh, my heart's beating really fast. Um, you know, this is, that's me needing to slow down. Um, and then in the context of, of a partner, you're able to read your cues and say what you need to happen. Um, and so I, I can give you an image that I use with folks, um, but the process really is like really, really slow titration is the word we use, but um, kind of like one toe in the water and then pull it back out <laughs> and then maybe two toes and then pull it back out, maybe your whole foot. So it's kind of this like easing back into contact in a way that feels safe. And the minute it gets activating, you pull back and come back to your body. So if you push past your body giving you a cue that it's not okay, that it's gonna shift, then you're gonna cause more harm and it makes it harder to know what your body's really needing. Um, so listening to your body, listening to the cues and then allowing your partner to, this is gonna be the hardest part for survivors, our partners need a high level of skill. <laughs> your partners need communication skills and they need good boundaries and they need good ability to um, listen to your body and to pay attention. Um, because if you dissociate, like if you go into either dissociative state or you have more of a like sub subspace and kink, um, it's going to be really hard for your partner to know your cues unless you've talked a lot about it. Um, and you might have a violation happen again because of the way in which your nervous system is responding to those cues. Um, so yeah, high level communication and lots of support and going really, really slow. And the minute, and you're in charge to so the first, like, you know, maybe the first year after, um, after trauma that you're, you're in charge of all the sexual situations. And the minute you say, no, stop, let's try again. Let's change positions, like high level of feedback. Um, that's going to help you get back to it. And I mean, that should be the standard for all sexual encounters, but unfortunately <laughs> it's, it's not in many cases. But um, as you were saying that, I was just thinking, God, that's still really scary though, to, to try and go, okay, that, that, that is ideal and it should be the basic line, but trying to find someone who is open to that and, and to say, hey, um, I have this sexual trauma in my past, I need to go slow. That's really terrifying to a lot of people to to vocalize that because you're worried about, well, A, them, they might share it or they just might not get it. Like you said, if they, they need to have all this understanding, like, is it a case of just hold off on, on sex until you can figure out how to identify that healthy relationship? And, you know, or, or I, I don't know, I just feel like there's a lot of risk of further re-traumatization there the risk benefit ratio isn't isn't quite adding up there in some cases yeah i hear that i think one thing i recommend to folks is actually start with friends where you're just having platonic touch that's practicing the same strategy so friends you already have trust with maybe other trauma survivors where you're practicing hugs practicing snuggles practicing just like arm touches or i really like betty martin's wheel of consent as a tool for that where you're you know doing a few of her activities around practicing um how do you know if you're a yes? How do you know which quadrant you're in? How do you know if you're taking versus giving? You know, so practicing some of that with people you already trust, friends, um, you know, maybe former partners, people you already have that foundation with. Um, and that can be really nice because it gives you some confidence in using the skills. Um, and then, you know, new partners, you're going to build more trust with first. So you're, you know, I highly recommend day one, first date, or even before you meet somebody, hey, I'm not having sex for the first two months, maybe hypothetically you're setting a boundary and if they don't want that they're not going to see you and like you're just screening out people who are 
that sex is their only goal and you're moving towards like who wants to connect with me as a human and all the parts of me including my trauma survival part absolutely yeah that seems like just really solid advice I think and especially you know I know you do a lot of work around kink and BDSM and the power that that may have for some people for sexual healing and a lot of BDSM is about communication and boundaries and you know your red list and your limits and your traffic light system and all this kind of thing you know in an ideal kind of world so talk to us a little bit more about the potential for for kink to transform the, the sexual healing experience yeah you know, as I already talked a little bit about, like our, our trauma is stored in our nervous system. So your system has learned its adaptive skills that it needs to keep you safe. Um, and the same neurobiological mechanisms that are impacted in trauma are also utilized in kink. So you're basically taking that same wiring, chemical electro signals, and you're fucking with them in an intentional way. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like kink is giving you the tools to rewire that system in a really thoughtful and meaningful way that's giving you power and control and kind of like you're you're managing the controls versus it being a little bit too haywire which sometimes sex itself can be um so you know for example you can negotiate uh, a super clear boundary scene where like you know all of the edges right you know and nothing's going to go past this point and this point and again you have trust of the person that you're doing it with where you know they're not going to violate that um, and then within that sandbox, within those those walls, you have sort of free reign to play with certain kinds of limits and pushing yourself to a place where you're activating your nervous system just a little bit and then being held in it and being able to like basically relearn that you can have safety in activation and that you, you yourself can manage it, that you're the one who's managing the pendulation versus it being external and kind of this like what sometimes can feel like a tornado just like moving through your body instead of it being oh i can i can get a little activated you know in this spanking scene or in this dominant scene or in this um you know rope scene and then i can come back down and i'm safe and i'm held um, so it gives a container to do the, the work we're doing in trauma work in a really structured way okay and but i'd imagine an important part of that would be aftercare as well certainly yeah and i think you know i would only recommend doing specific trauma healing work with really safe, trusting partners who can hold you in all the ways you might need after. So, um, you know, if there's any activation being done in the moment, you then will need a lot more processing after around what did that mean? And, how, you know, for example, if someone's gonna do um, some kind of dominance play where they're being, there's any kind of like humiliation or subjugation um, that they've clearly negotiated. Afterwards, it's like, hey, even though, you know, I called you my little slut, <laughs> I care for you and I love you and you're really important to me and I'm gonna hold you after. So there's kind of this like completing the cycle of I get to be in this fantasy space and this arousal space in this kind of like moving back to what feel can sometimes feel like reenactment of the trauma, but it's actually um, re-empowerment in the trauma. So sort of like, um, you know, in a rape situation, maybe we should give a content warning for <laughs> me saying rape twice. Yeah, no, um, we will put that at the start. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in a rape situation, you know, you were totally out of control. And instead, this one, you are in control. So even if there might be elements that are similar, you're calling the shots and you're able to like be in the arousal part of it without being in the fear part of it. Um, and knowing that the minute that the fear becomes too much, you get to pull back and shift it. Um, and so then here is that whole thing that connected. Yeah. And, but but there, I suppose, would there be two schools of thought on, of that? On one hand, it's like, you know like you said there you have that sense of control and that's what you didn't have when you were being violated and so that sense of control can be really 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 empowering on the other hand is it essentially revisiting the trauma and you know is it kind of what sort um 
yeah. Re, re, yeah and replaying the trauma over and over again so does it keep you stuck in that victim mode like is there I'm sure there's many schools of thoughts more than more than just two but um what what's your thought there I mean, I recommend working with a therapist who's skilled in kink um, to help with this. But what I what I have folks do is if they're going to do anything even close to a replication of a trauma situation, that they're changing the story in it. So instead of maybe there is some subjugation, but at the end they fight back and they get away or um, they change the languaging in it. Like, you know, um, I'm going to hold you down because you're such a beautiful princess and you're and, I'm, and you know, I want to like give you all the pleasure. So it's like they're using some of the same using the mechanisms that are hot, the parts that they liked that are arousing, which is a part of trauma, right? There's so many folks who have um, arousal or pleasure or orgasm during trauma because it's conflated. Our nervous systems have the same, the same element in your vagus nerve impacts both arousal and trauma. <laughs> and so it is the same system. And so being able to fuck with it in this intentional way lets you change your experience of the thing. So I don't ever recommend doing the same. And I never recommend role-playing the same character. So like if your dad was the person who harmed you, do not role-play dad, <laughs> daddy role-play. Um, but maybe it's a supportive, safe man who's like, you know, fuck your daddy, I'm in charge of you now and I'm gonna hold you and keep you safe. You know, so like you're changing the story to re-anchor yourself in. I can still sometimes be submissive or still, still receive pleasure in this way that I like, but do it in a way that's gonna be liberating and healing and I get to still have control and give feedback afterwards and talk about my feelings and you get to be a whole person in all those experiences which, which sounds lovely and, and re-empowering I want, I want to go back to the point you just made there about shame and the the body getting aroused during um a sexual violation which I think happens a lot more than we think because people are so ashamed and don't know how to process that that they just mm -hmm. don't talk about it and it's just like this taboo thing of like was it really sexual assault if I kind of got off on it like I had an orgasm but like what you know it, it's almost an extra layer that you have to deal with and I think that that might especially go for um you know if, for people with penises as well if your penis gets erect or you have you know um, you know if you ejaculate when you're being sexually assaulted they're like oh what well is that sexual violence then so how do people process that part and and you know because again like you just said a lot of people might not know that it's just a biological response and that that mm -hmm. mixture of pleasure and trauma and, and and everything else going in how do you start making heads and tails of that yeah you know i think one of the challenging things is um our bodies are both um sometimes thought neutral like their response is distinct from the way we might think about the thing that's happening to it and so our, our belief that like our thoughts can dictate and <laughs> always do the things we want our bodies to do um, isn't really um, isn't real and isn't helpful. And so I think honoring that like our bodies are really complex and can have multiple experiences at once, right? Like you can feel like deep love for someone and you want to punch them in the face because <laughs> they're being kind of shitty. Like there's, we can have complexity of feelings, but also complexity of sensations. So, you know, we can be both in a trauma activation state, like I want to get the fuck away or I want to, I need, I need to freeze and hide. I need to get small while your body is also being stimulated to arousal. Um, and so I think there's an end and you may, you may find elements of that situation hot. Um, and that's really true for a lot of folks who are socialized female and have, um, you know, rape experiences where, uh, a lot of the elements of that are actually really common in terms of just arousal. Like we like being taken. We like the idea of being, um, you know, someone really wanting us and someone like having a, like, um, we like a little bit of force. We like, like sometimes like the, the, the passion that comes with like this, this belief of desire, um, like not having to make a choice, make a decision, kind of just like rapture sort of like, which is a lot of our socialization around like, that's what sex is supposed to be. This like, 
you know, this hot stranger walks up to you in a bar and like take pushes you against a wall and makes out with you passionately and like, oh, that's so sexy. You know, so like we have this. So then when it happens and, and it's a harm situation, it's really conflated and complex. Um, and I think honoring that all of it can be true and can exist at the same time and knowing that it's not your fault that the thing happened. The fact that you have desire does not mean it is your fault that you were assaulted. Um, the people who assault you and who violate our boundaries, it is always their fault. You are not to blame. The fact that your body has pleasure um, is your body doing its thing it's supposed to do. <laughs> um, and it is not bad or wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really important to just remember that like it's never our fault it doesn't matter what is actually going on uh, with our bodies and, and things like that as well and, and t- talking through the shame part as well because that's definitely something that a lot of people have you know it's, it's like ugh, the victim blaming that our society engages in is pretty toxic and you know we have covered this on the podcast as well but that shame that internalized shame of oh, like if only I hadn't done this if only I hadn't done this and you know or if I hadn't worn that or if I hadn't gotten drunk or this is somehow my fault you know how do we move past that part into that healthy you know approach to healing because I feel like that that sticks our healing sometimes when we're so focused on beating ourselves up for it it's hard to move on to the healing part of things yeah and I think you know one thing I have folks do is identify where those voices are coming from the voices of shame who the fuck's voice is this this is my family this is my church this is this is you know some bullshit politician, you know, these are, these are not my voices, you know, and my voices are telling me my body wasn't safe and I didn't want that thing to happen. Even if I didn't say no, even if I didn't fight back, um, our body, the most common trauma response in a sexual assault is fawning or um, complicitness is the kind of just stay safe by freezing, by, by getting small, by like staying quiet, by pretending it's not happening. Like those are the most common responses um, because fighting back or getting away can be dangerous. Um, or can harm the relationship because often it's somebody we care about and so we want to stay in belonging and so we're gonna we're gonna stay we're gonna get small Um, and those are all common responses and that's you staying safe so I have folks do a lot of work around like how can you thank (laughs) your body instead of feeling bad about it or being mad at it how can you thank your body for doing what it needed to stay safe that's such Um, a lovely way of putting that that's this is really kind yeah an example of my one of my sexual assaults if folks are okay with this. Um, you know, I was sexually assaulted by someone um, when I was um, black, blacked out um, from alcohol. And uh, I like woke up in the middle of it. And uh, and I remember saying out loud, um, oh, please come on my titties. I, w- I would love it like that. And it, it was one of those moments where I was like, my brain could rationalize like, oh, this person's fucking me without a condom. And I wanna like manage my safety. So like me being like, how can I say in a sexy way, <laughs> you know, do this thing that I want that will also actually help me protect myself. Like it took me a long time to like honor that that was not me wanting this thing. That was me being like, I'm going to keep myself safe by having someone ejaculate on my chest instead of inside of me. Which is it's right. a smart survival skills, but in the moment and or afterwards when you're feeling all the things, it's really hard to recognize that. But yeah, I mean, like, yeah, your brain is pretty good in, in that situation to kind of I keep thinking like years after I keep being like oh my fucking god but I was like that aware enough to be like and, I, and to say it in a sexy way so he didn't think I was being mad like I mean this I'm in a stranger's house I don't know who this person is and I don't know where you know so like to stay safe I had to do this thing that would like just get him to finish and like and then get and then get away um you know and I think our bodies are always trying to figure out the easiest way to survival which may not always be what we've socially constructed as the best way yeah, <laughs> and it's hard to differentiate between 
Yeah, and, and like you said, I think that fawning response is so much more common, but it seems like it, it, it's more imbued with shame sometimes because it's like, oh, did you fight back? Is like, like the immediate question that some people have as if like that is the correct thing to do. And like you said, that's just not safe in many times. And, you know, or you are physically not capable of, of doing it or, you know, whatever happens. So I, I think, yeah, that that awareness is important. Yeah, and I, I bet 80% of people I would tell that story to would say, oh, you clearly wanted it because of that. And so it's it's an interesting like reframing of like, uh, our bodies are endlessly complex. And especially, you know, in, in our in the ways that we've been, we've learned to engage in such sexual situations, like folks who've been socialized female or folks who've all those like, are almost always in this kind of deferent receiving space. And so we, we were also, I think, relearning how to have our power in sexual spaces. And what does it mean to, you know, um, lead them with, you know, I often say to folks like, what would it be like to hook up with a stranger and just have them eat you out and then leave? Like that happens all the time with dudes. Like that's a really common to like have yeah. someone force them. To <laughs> you give somebody a blowjob and never see them again. Um, you know, so what would it be like to like center your pleasure and center your own experiences and center your wants and needs and not engage in it without that? Um, but it, it, that's a really, really steep jump from where most of us are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of speak jump, steep jumps as well, I think a lot of people put pressure on themselves to be like, oh, I have to be healed by now. And they put a, t- a time limit on themselves or like feel a sense of frustration that, oh, I'm in this new relationship and it's great, but I just can't get into it because I'm still dealing with everything and that's a sense it's a vicious cycle in some ways because then you start beating yourself up going I I should be okay by now and I should I should have gotten over it by now and especially if it's um like not minimizing but not not as violent and and massive air bunny quotes around around that not as physically violent should we say as other things so people might minimize it then and go well it wasn't that bad because I wasn't injured or there was no hardcore physical violence and of course it's it's all bad it's all terrible it's not a competition or anything like that but I think people minimize things and and then get frustrated with themselves that they haven't healed yet does that make sense? I kind of, I'm not not minimizing the violent yeah. part of things on that. And it's a big part. I mean, I would say you know, two extremes, like a, a sex worker client of mine who's like violently assaulted by a client and then and robbed compared to like, I had a client who like uh, in her church, a minister like grazed her boob once in a, like during a, like giving a back rub. And like those two traumas were just as just as like intense for those humans. And so our nervous system's adaptation or response to something that happens to us so deeply seated in our culture, our identity, um, what, what our belonging means, um, you know, what, what our typical exposure to sexual contact is. So like there's lots of like factors that impact the intensity of something, kind of going back to the web that I talked about earlier, like the context in which it happens, your identity stuff, the response after, like all of these forces impact how something is experienced. And it's all valid. Like your body telling you this fucking sucks and this isn't okay. Your body is the, is the only one who gets to judge what's okay in terms of your experience and, and how you're feeling about it. Um, and your body shutting down and being activated is, is real and is, and is valid. And you don't need to tell anybody your story and you don't need to compare yours to anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like, it might be something small, like you said, but it's not small you know and it, it might link back to childhood stuff or that intergenerational stuff or or something like that I, I want to talk on, on language for a second there a lot of people have um 
issues with the term victim and they prefer the term survivor and some people prefer the term thriver and some people don't like any of it and they just you know will pick something else as well what 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 are your thoughts on, on that obviously people can pick what the, what the, what works for them and stuff like that but um is it a phase of, is it a case of like a lot of people move from victim to survivor or they you know just pick one and stick with it or do people kind of go between them yeah I mean, I think, you know, as you said, everyone gets to choose what language feels good for them. And, um, but often I think people aren't choosing their language, it's being ascribed to them by other people. And so, you know, someone, um, someone at a hospital telling you you were a victim or somebody or a police officer, you know, describing your harm as a victim, as a victimization. Um, you know, I, t- I took a criminology course in undergrad that was called victimology, like just focused on, you know, who are the victims in, the, in society? So, I mean, I think we have a, we have a lot of frameworks around um, this, this victim criminal dichotomy, um, and doesn't really work, right? So it, it, it ostracizes and, um, and limits access to the complexity of our experiences. Um, so ultimately I think, you know, finding what language feels empowering and centering of all of you, um, including the parts of you that were harmed, but also the parts of you that were strong, the parts of you that, um, did your best to stay safe, the parts of you that were maybe little, and scared, you know, so what, what, what language feels good for you? And I, I've had survivors tell me, you know, I often use the word survivor just as a, like, usually a better feeling word for, for some folks. Um, and I've had a lot of them tell me, like, it fucking sucks. I don't want to be a survivor forever. Like, I'm something else. Like, the survivor isn't my only identity, but it sometimes can become that because so much of our life cycles around the things we need to do to stay safe. Yeah. So sometimes just like, you being a fucking person is great too. <laughs> yeah, just a regular person sitting there yeah. eating chips in front of the TV and not being a label, just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You're nothing. Or your 50 other designations too, you know. Like, like <laughs> yeah. my bio has, you know, 30 other identities. But <laughs> yeah. The survivor is just one part of the story. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I know you, you, you said you also do a lot of work around that anti-oppression experiences and you talk a lot about capitalism and patriarchy and things like that. And, you know, how, how important is it for people to situate their experiences within those contexts? Um, you know, I think one of the key things that come out of like liberation psychology and out of um, uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed is this idea that um, our mental health systems are um, political systems or education systems really like to blame the individual. <laughs> they, they, they've made millions of dollars on this idea that like, let's find what's wrong with you and fix it. Um, and often there's nothing wrong with you. You're just adapting to problematic systems. You've learned to survive in systems of oppression that have told you how you're supposed to be to be okay. And that adaptation means you lose your voice, your magic, your wisdom, your strength, um, because you are trying to fit the system that doesn't work for you. You know, most of us don't fit in capitalism. Capitalism is fucking broken. And, you know, most of us don't work jobs that give us a sustainable income and a life work balance and access to our needs being fully met and vacation time and time with our families. And, you know, so like the belief that we should buy into the systems because that's how we assimilate and are good members of society, like isn't working and only benefits, you know, cis white men and the top, you know, 10% of you know, wealth holders in the world. And, um, you know, they consistently were realizing that like white supremacy has been, has been the source of most of the problems, you know, religious um, colonization, that the dogmatic belief that we should all be Christians and <laughs> therefore murder people. Um, I mean, there's so many examples of harm that was done um, and our lack of access to ourselves. And I, I really like honor and would love to help folks get back to like, who would you be <laughs> outside of these systems? Um, 
and not that we all have that have that freedom or that liberty. I certainly don't necessarily. I still have to figure out how to eat every day and pay my bills. Um, but just the dreaming of that, the like radical envisioning of like being in community and um, caring for people without um, systems that dictate how we're supposed to be. And especially when it comes to sex, like so much of our sex is about assimilation. Get married, you know, date somebody, get married, have a kid, retire and be happy. And like most of our sex does not fall within that framework. Like most humans want more than that and different things than that. And we just don't talk about it because that's that's what love is. That's what romance is. That's what belonging is, is this dyadic pairing that actually benefits the patriarchy and capitalism. You know, if you're paired off with one person, usually heterosexual, your um, money is controlled within a family system of wealth and within a male system of wealth. Um, and it keeps you from, you know, you living in a community and dating a bunch of women <laughs> um, completely changes our financial structure. Um, and that's terrifying to the world. Yeah, yeah. Imagine, oh, like, if it was just, if we burnt it all down and we started from scratch and we had a much fairer system. We will get there one day um, and people like you are going to create that for us and you're going to be leading us along the way because I think a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is new to a lot of people and I'm really glad you're out there doing that work for people, especially on something as, you know, as devastating as sexual violence is, but as liberating as healing can be for some people and for others. It's not just liberating, it's just living, just getting on with life and, and, and all that kind of thing and obviously that's liberating in its own way we don't have to be going to orgies after we're going I'm healed from my sexual violence <laughs> there's no pressure if you want to do that that's fine but you know we, you don't have to kind of be getting there but um I like yeah I look I could talk to you for ages and I know we, we are going to come back to you again on the podcast because you have an amazing initiative to work with um sex workers and therapy tell us just a little bit about that and then we'll get you back on the podcast to discuss that because it's such an incredible thing that you're doing yeah, totally. Um, I am working with a really radical team of therapists and sex workers. Um, some are folks who hold both identities as well as um, just sex workers in the community to create a certification program for therapists on treating sex workers. It's going to be 36 hours of courses that'll be all asynchronous digital. They can watch anytime um, and we'll give them a lot of resources to do a better job with that community. And it's going to be entirely taught by um, having sex workers voices included and um, led by them and in including the things they want us to say. And so I think in a way that um, it's one of the first of its kind in that it's really centering the communities that we're seeking to serve um, and not giving black and whites that you know, I think that's one of the communities where there is no absolute about how you do a good job. It's much more about learning some of the nuances and I'm grateful for the team of, of, that I'm working with. Um, you can find out more about that at equitablecarecert.com. Brilliant. Fantastic. Say that again for us. It was equitablecarecert.com. Brilliant. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So Angie, it's always fantastic as always. And hopefully I'll, I'll get over the pond to see you again in person at, at some point soon um, post-COVID. We'll get there. <laughs> Folks can also find me at connectivetherapycollective.com is my other business. Perfect. So. And do you have um, a Twitter as well and Instagram? Yep. So all connective th at Connective Therapy Collective. Fantastic. Brilliant. Listen, Angie, thank you so, so much for putting all this goodness out there into the world. And we'll chat to you again soon on the podcast.
Thank you. And thank you to all my listeners as well. I know that's a heavy podcast episode, but I think there's just so much learning in that. And I think, you know, I know a lot of my listeners have experiences like this and, and it's it's lovely to be able to provide that space for people to hopefully engage with their healing on a deep level. If you want to reach out again, the, um, if I can talk now, the Twitter and Instagram is Aklo West Podcast. And like I said, at the top of the air, if you want to support the, the show, it's patreon.com forward slash Tortoiseshack and I'll chat to you next week.